Good morning. Today I'll be reading Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted of those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to be in Luke 1 looking at what we traditionally call the first Christmas. But I want to propose that we think of the characters as the first Christians, the first to profess faith, not like those in the Old Testament who profess faith in the promise of a Redeemer, but in the person of promise, in Jesus. And in particular, we're going to see through Mary a common journey to faith, And then the Magnificat reflecting four marks of authentic faith. So turn with me to Luke 1 if you haven't already. Jessica began reading in verse 26, the angel visiting Mary, and we'll go back to that conversation in just a few minutes. But I just want to bring out a couple things about Elizabeth that reflect that she is among those that has responded to this message, and she understands that the baby inside Mary's womb is her Savior. Mary comes, the baby moves within Elizabeth. She's filled with the Holy Spirit herself, and she says this, verse 42, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
What we have here is a first statement of a personal belief in who this baby inside Mary was. And she already surrenders to him as Lord. My Lord is a personal belief there. Now, of course, Mary, we're going to look at in a few moments, but I'm going to spend a couple of minutes right now doing a, a sermon inside a sermon here. One of those teaching opportunities to address a social and moral issue in uh, our society today. Because there's actually a third Christian in this cluster. There's Elizabeth. There's Mary. But then if you read verse 44, you see a third. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. One of the things we know about John the Baptist, what the angel Gabriel told Zechariah, was that from birth he would already have the Holy Spirit. Now, the presence and work of the Holy Spirit prior to Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came as Jesus had promised to replace him, to be the constant presence in dwelling, empowering, teaching and guiding every believer. It's why the Bible refers to us now as the temple of God. In the Old Testament, you don't have that. The Holy Spirit comes upon people to empower them for specific ministries. This is true of John. John the Baptist was empowered for his calling to be the forerunner, the one that the prophets had spoken of that would come before the Messiah, preparing the way, making straight the path. He's marked with the Holy Spirit from infancy. That's a unique thing. But I do want to talk about life in the womb and the abortion issue. And I know this is a sensitive issue, that passionate people believe uh, things on both sides. And I also know that the generations in this room, even though all of us Jesus followers, may have different opinions on this. I hope today that you'll see that this is as strong an argument that life is in the womb Life exists in the womb. You'll see that this passage indicates that as profoundly as any passage. More than that, life in the womb worshipped Jesus. You could argue and say, well, yeah, but the, the life in the womb had the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Now, now listen to me. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit didn't come to Elizabeth, and therefore through Elizabeth attached to the infant in her womb. The infant in her womb was blessed with the presence of the Holy Spirit. What that indicates is that John, as a human being, had a spirit in the womb. When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, he comes into our spirit. John, from conception, had a spirit of his own. So if the Holy Spirit could come upon a baby in the womb, wouldn't that say that God sees that baby as more than an extension of the mother's body. Not simply a bundle of organic material, but an individual person. Are the choices that we make about that body, therefore, just about the mother's rights and choices, or about the rights of two human beings? Is the child simply an extension of the woman's body with which she can do as she pleases, or a life which has been placed in her womb to be protected and nourished and cherished until it is able to fulfill the life God planned for him or her. 
You see, it's really hard to look at a passage like this and not recognize that while we may debate whether or not the baby in the womb is an individual, it's clear what God thinks, isn't it? God treats and sees the baby in Elizabeth as an individual. And that individual is empowered by the Holy Spirit and actually able to worship. That's a powerful thought. And my hope is that it'll settle what's at the core of this debate for us because the world throws all sorts of issues. And increasingly, I hear from Christians who say, you know, it's more complicated than that. It's not just about that. It's about pain, and it's about brutality, and it's about rights, and it's about whether or not children should be brought up in this world. It's complicated. Well, no, those are ways of throwing arguments on top of the real issue. If you get down to the question as to whether that child in the womb is a life, if you get down there, then all those other issues don't matter. I've actually heard Christians lately say, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that I'm a Christian, I'd believe in abortion. Because they're persuaded by all the other issues. I hope that that's not how you see it. I hope that you don't come into a kicking and screaming when God loves the child in the womb. I hope you love what God loves. Don't allow the arguments to cloud the real issue. And the way I suggest you do that is to think about the infant in the womb as though they were alive and in the nursery right now. The same issues that you argue about as to whether the mother has a right to end the life of the fetus, as we like to call it, to make it less personal, all the arguments that persuade you to think that somebody can make a choice to end that life, apply those arguments to a child that's two months old, two days old. You see, as a Christian, we cannot deny the fact that God sees as an individual with a spirit values and loves and has a plan and a purpose for the children sitting in our nursery today and sitting in your wombs today of equal value. Now, I say that with respect to the fact that um, some of us may have already made decisions related to that. You just have a hard time hearing it. And just, just the fact that it's so emotional for you, you're likely to ignore it because it's too painful to look at mistakes that have been made in the past. I want you to know, God's gracious. God is gracious. But we're responsible for what we know. And as Christians, we affirm all of life. I, I don't know how I could have gone through this moment without taking this as an opportunity to address that issue. And I hope you're, you're more comfortable. This is not an issue of just one human being's rights to choose. This is an issue of two individuals that God has created and his desire that they live and they fulfill their purpose, that they give glory to him. I hope I've made my point. I, I hope I've persuaded you. That's, that's my hope. I also hope that you receive that from my heart with grace. Now let's look at Mary. From this point on, I, I want to give credit to Tim Keller. I think he's one of our, our truly great expositors. Sometimes when you're studying, you run into something that so covers what should be said that you know the best gift you can give your congregation are those very points. So I'm going to talk about three steps that Mary takes in the process of coming to faith. We want to standardize 
all of our Christian experience. And that's a great mistake. All of our journeys to faith are different. One example would be the Philippian jailer, whose conversion seems almost instantaneous. His household also, and they are all baptized. But I think for a lot of us, it's a little longer. Another example, Peter spent more than a year with Jesus from the time he was called to come and follow him to the time that he professed faith in Christ. We know the disciples, as they heard his message and they watched the miracles at times, they would say among themselves, who is this man? It was a year for Peter in the very presence of Jesus himself to get what Jesus had been saying and living and proving all along. Mary is somewhere in the middle of that. And we can break down her experience into three steps. The first is incredulity. Now you know that's not one of my words. That's a Tim Keller word. Incredulity. After the angel says what's going to happen, Mary's first response in verse 34 is, how will this be? And then she goes on and makes an argument as to why it couldn't be. I read into that response not just an honest question, but a semi-rhetorical argument. How can this possibly happen? Many of us go through that stage. The gospel at first seems unbelievable, quite literally. It doesn't make sense. Or the implications of what we're hearing are so troubling to us because they go against the worldview that we've developed, accepted by culture around us. The implications of the gospel, when we come to understand it, rock our world. John Bunyan, how many of you know uh, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, which, by the way, would be a great book to read around this very topic we're talking about right now. John Bunyan wrestled for more than a year and a half to come to faith, went back and forth from severe depression to guilt to anger. I find many people, when they first hear the gospel, are first angry, sort of like Rex, the dinosaur from Toy Story. One of the famous quotes, Woody had been telling the truth, and they demonized him, and then they discovered he had been telling the truth all along. What's uh, Rex's response? Great, now I have guilt. (laughs) A lot of us, when we first hear the gospel, that's our response. Great, that's the last thing I need now. Now I have guilt. I want to go as far as to suggest that if you have never been troubled by the gospel, if the implications of it have never stretched you, chances are you've never really thought through it. You could have been raised in the church and you just accepted as a child. Faith as a child is a beautiful thing. But at some point, the realities of the world kick in. Why do you think you see so many who've been raised in the church leave completely? Because at some point, they take this very simplistic idea of loving Jesus, inviting him into our heart, and life being fine, and then they put it against their experience. They put it against the world around them. They put it against tragedies like the one that just happened in Connecticut, and they find it unbelievable. Some even find it offensive and become anti-theists. That's why the Bible says the gospel is to those that are perishing foolishness, and the cross is a stumbling block. In some sense, all of us have to stumble and decide if we're going to get up and go forward. Mary has that experience. But then moves on. The next stage is confused submission. 
Look at what she says next in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. That's a, that's a rousing endorsement, isn't it? No, it's submission in the midst of a lot of confusion. I think when the Bible says Mary treasured all these things in her heart, the word treasured there is more of a pondered, contemplated. I think Mary spent her whole life knowing, I don't get all this, but God does. But at this stage, she gets even less of it. And all she can do is surrender to it. Most of us, at some point or another, may experience that stage, and it's a very important one. At first, the gospel seems impossible, but then we get to the point where we go, I need this. I need this. When I consider the options and come to terms with my own moral brokenness, all the alternatives are less credible. I, I get that I need this, and so I'm in. I don't fully understand it, but I'm in. There's a moment in the life of the first disciples where Jesus begins preaching a clear message about the cost of following him, about who he is, and people's need to partake of him and partake of his life. Scripture says at that point, many withdrew from him and were no longer following him. So Jesus turns to the 12. It's a defining moment. And he says, are are you going to leave too? And Peter, speaking for all of them, says, how many know what he says? Where else can we go? You alone are the words of life. I don't quite get what this is all about, but I look at the alternatives and I say, there's no place else to go. So I'm in this. I'm in this. Mary takes that step. And then that leads to the third stage. Keller calls that exaltation. Of course, we see that in the Magnificat that we'll get to in just a a couple of minutes. But it happens only after Elizabeth speaks to her. Let's read what Elizabeth says to her again. Pick up at verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in the womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. It's after that affirmation of her belief, that experience in community, Mary comes to full realization. First, incredulity. Then, confused submission finally opens up into exalted joy. And she says, my My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why there? I don't know for sure. But what I do believe is that we take a step of faith. Coming to Christ is never something that can be scientifically, empirically proven. It has to be experienced. That's why the first step is always somewhat a blind step. And we take a step of faith. God blesses that. And as we go forward, there is a point where what once troubled us becomes one of the greatest, most joyful truths to us, that we have a God 
who is a Savior. Now, there are a lot of different journeys of different lengths in our process of coming to Christ. But the more important question is, has it happened to you? Have you made that journey? Has it produced, as a result, a joy in your experience that's inexpressible, that rocks your soul and your spirit? I want to look at now, for a couple minutes, this Magnificat. I want to just point out four things that are a mark of Mary's life as a result of her coming to believe in her Savior, who at this point is in her womb. How incredible is that? Let's look at them. The first, Keller calls centrality. That's in verse 46 and 47. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Soul, Greek word psyche. Spirit, Greek word pneuma or wind. They are used interchangeably. And what they mean is our core being, the whole of us, who we are at our center, that which never changes and is eternal. Mary uses these two interchangeable words as emphasis. She's almost saying, I'm beside myself as I think about this. It has hit me at my core to my very depths. One of the ways you know you've come to faith in Christ is that Jesus isn't just a faith system or a church experience that you've added to your life's resume. He's not just one aspect that you've added to a life that you're still in control of. If you see Jesus as the equivalent eternally to buying life insurance on this side, I'm just going to acquire it. I'm going to put it in my portfolio because it's a good thing to have. I want to have eternal life assurance. If all you've done is invite Jesus into your well-established life, then he hasn't shaken your soul. He hasn't changed your identity at the core. That happens to Mary. My soul, my spirit is rocked by this. Second thing is wonder, verse 48 and 49. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. That's really the emphasis there. It's this statement of delight and wonder and surprise that the God, the almighty God who created all things and has been enacting a plan that has been going on through all of history, that involves the heavens and the earth, has worked on her behalf. There's a wonder in that. You see, when you focus on Christianity religiously, it's what you do that matters, right? I believe this. I live this. I'm involved in this. There's no wonder. There's no surprise. There's just accomplishment. Christianity is not about what you do. It's about what God has done to you. And when you think about what God has done to you, that the almighty God of all of creation has reached me, stepped into my life, when you focus on that, there's wonder, there's delight, there's surprise. If you say, 
Of course I'm a Christian. I was raised a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. I believe and follow Jesus. Of course I'm a Christian. It's hard work, but I do it. Then you have no real understanding of the gospel. The gospel is not about what you do. It's what God has done for and in you. You're still trying to achieve salvation. Say, has to result in wonder. The third is fear. Look at that in verse 50. It's an interesting statement. His mercy extends to those who fear him. This is almost counterintuitive. One of those conflicting points that people outside of the faith and many Christians themselves struggle with. How can I both love God, feel loved and saved by him, and yet have fear? Well, let me take you to Psalm 130. Let's say this uh, verse together. Say it with me. You forgive our sins that we may learn to fear you. It's a question of what fear is. There are two types of fear in religion. One is fear of the law. It's a fear of being harmed. But the other is a fear that comes out of love, and it's a very different thing. And when the Bible refers to fear for those that are the children of God, it's referring to that kind of fear. Let me, let me give you an example to help you with this. When I am driving down my road, South Street, which becomes Purchase Street, it goes down from 50 at EMC. Well, maybe it's 45, but I drive 50. But it drops down to 30 as soon as you get inside Milford. My last ticket was on that road. I was doing 45 in a 30. So now, when I drive on that road, I am really careful. I tow the line. And every once in a while, I see a policeman. And I get this little whoom in my stomach. And I check. I have respect. I have fear for that policeman. It's a healthy one. But I have a fear for him because I don't, I don't want to pay that fine again. I don't want to be hurt. That's one type of fear. And religious people can approach Christianity in that way. I'm going to be a Christian because I don't want to get hurt. But then there's a different kind of fear. Let me talk about my wife. (laughs) Who I fear also. But not like that policeman. See, my fear with my wife has nothing to do with concern about being hurt. You know what I'm fearful of? I love her so much. I'm fearful that I'll hurt her. I'm fearful that I will conduct myself in such a way that dishonors her, that makes light of our commitment. I fear the impact of that for her. When the Bible talks about fearing God as his children, it's that fear. It's the wonderful, delightful fear of love, the fear that I would act in any way that does not fulfill this glorious, loving God and Savior's wishes through me. That when he was so generous that I would not be generous in return, that I would hoard what he has given me in my banking accounts rather than giving it as generous as he has been, that I would live in such a way, even if other people don't see it, I would live privately in such a way that God sees and is wounded and dishonored by that. That is what Mary is talking about. When you really get the gospel and you understand what's happened for you, you learn that fear 
When you understand forgiveness, you acquire, you learn that glorious loving fear of not dishonoring the one that you love. Do you know that fear? Do you live in such a way that you want God to always be elevated by what you're doing? That's a mark of someone that really knows and has applied the gospel to their life. And then finally, truth. Here's how he talks about truth, and we'll just wrap up with this quickly. Mary refers to God both as the almighty God, which in the Jewish tradition means the holy, righteous God, the one who judges, but also merciful in almost the same breath. And what that means is that Mary grasps the truth of why Jesus had come. This is the conflict of the gospel at the heart of the gospel. How can God be both a mighty, righteous, and holy God who judges sin, but also a merciful God who forgives and offers grace? The world says that can't happen. There can't be a righteous God, a holy God, and a loving God. So I'm just going to choose one. But the God who is, is a holy, zealous, righteous God who is infinitely merciful. How does that God act in a way that we receive his mercy, not his judgment. Mary got it. God's holiness and God's mercy kiss. They meet in Jesus. And in this case, quite literally, God's righteousness and God's mercy meet in her womb. At the heart of our true journey with Christ is that truth. It anchors the whole. When you get that right, when you embrace it, when you apply it to your life, it gives you the zeal, the joy that is expressed in the whole of this beautiful psalm that Mary creates through the power of the Holy Spirit in her. And that same Holy Spirit works in our life as God's children. That same gospel applied to our life produces that zeal, that joy, that wonder, that loving fear, that confidence of the truth in our life. Father, we come to you and we know all that you want for us is a deeper and fuller understanding of grace of ourselves. I pray for those that have recognized themselves in any one of these stages here today. And I pray that they would take another step forward. And I pray that all of us, those of us who have trusted in the gospel, we would look at the reality of its impact in our life around these four ideas. We would be more devoted to it, that it would come into the deepest sections of our heart, our very core, our soul. And in that, Father, we would find you afresh in Jesus' name. Amen.